Last week, we started into a new preaching series called A Treasure in a Field. And I'm taking that term from the parable of Jesus where he said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and covered it up and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And what I'm suggesting in taking that is that the kingdom of God is in some ways hidden to many people. Many people will pass right by Christianity thinking they know what it is and missing out because they don't. They are dismissing something other than what the actual gospel teaches us. And my hope in this preaching series is to unveil some things about the good news that really would make us have the kind of joy of the man who found it, that we would be willing to give everything we have and joyfully go and take possession of it. So last week I mentioned a couple of promises that Jesus made, and I want to follow up on one of those today. The promise in that gospel passage that Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And I want to ask the question of this abundant life. Did Jesus intend us to understand that as being when we die and go to heaven? Is the abundant life that he promises only for later? Or is it for now? Obviously, the scriptures and my own experience, um, at least obviously to me, it's for now. The scriptures and experience would point in that direction, that it's not just something that starts later, but rather the eternal life is available to us now, today, that we can experience a kind of life that is abundant, that is beyond what is ordinary, because it's in the hands of our God who is full of blessing. I want you to think for a minute about your life. What is a life? What is your life made up of? What does it consist of? A life can be thought of a number of different ways to think holistically about it. Your soul and your heart and your mind and your emotions and your physical body and the social context in which you live, your relationships, your family, all of these things encompass your life. That's what you've been given. And if you think of Jesus giving the great commandment, when tested by a lawyer, you know, Rabbi, what is the most important commandment he was asked? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's in Mark 12, verse 30. So your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, you could think of your life as being those things. That's, That's entrusted to you. And the fact that the greatest commandment has to tell us to love God with those things would imply that it's possible to take those things and use them for other purposes. To not love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To not have a life that is focused on Him and pleasing Him and serving Him, but a life that is more focused on yourself and pleasing yourself. Even disconnected from God, we do have a certain amount of dominion, rule, or reign, A friend of mine named Alan likes to refer to it as a thiefdom. I've got my own little thiefdom right here, and I'm in charge of this much. I have real power, and I can do certain things, but in this area. And by an attitude of heart, I'm like a thief grabbing this from God and trying to exert my own will on it. We have that possibility. We can do that. I I want you to think a little bit about a battery. You know, the other day, as these lightning storms that have been so frequent were coming through. I was sitting in my house, the kind of clouds rolled in, it got real dark, you know, it feels ominous, and then my dog starts freaking out because he can hear the distant thunder and he's crawling under the couch and that kind of thing. And I thought, oh, maybe I should go get some candles. And then I went, wait a minute, 
I have a battery pack in my pocket. I can pull out my cell phone and probably for at least two hours have a flashlight on before that dies out. I've got this right in my pocket, and it's not connected. It doesn't require a plug into a wall, so if the power goes out, no problem. If the internet's gone and I don't have Wi-Fi, it doesn't matter. The battery and that flashlight will still work. You and I are kind of like that, that even if we are disconnected from God, we have power that he has given us, and we can exert that for a while until the battery runs out. Our bodies are kind of like that. They give us the ability to interact with the created world. And it's essential to personhood. And some people have more ability than others. But if you think of someone who gets to a place where they cannot feed themselves, they can't move very well, people have to move them out of the bed and into the bathroom and back, they start to have a diminishing life and not really want to live anymore. Their ability to interact has been whittled down so much that there's not much left. But each one of us has some domain, some rule. And what are we doing with that is the question. What kind of life are we living? Our reign is the range of our effective will. I can choose to do things. I have the physical capacity. I could tilt this pulpit over if I wanted to. I could do that. And you have power as well. And I wonder, can this be extended? Can it be multiplied or amplified in some way? Remember, the promise is life and life abundant, an abundant life. Not just any old life, but an abundant one. What does it look like for God to amplify your life and make it more and more abundant? I'm pretty sure this is true for you, but I know it's true for me, that I want my life to count for something, something more. I want significance. I don't want it to just be, you know, however many years and then I'm forgotten. I want it to have some significance that transcends my own limited realm. The search for significance is something that people have been after for centuries, even for millennia. And when I think about that, most people aim really low. You know, starting back as a kid, you got to work really hard in school. Why? Well, so you can get into a good college. Okay, why? Well, so you can get a good job. Why? So you can make money, a lot of money. Why? Well, so you can have a family and provide for them. Why? Uh, So you could retire comfortably and give them an inheritance. Why? That's not enough for me. Those are all great things, but it's not enough. I want us to want more because I think Jesus has more for us than that. That's life, and he's promising a life that's abundant, a life that's bigger than that. Now, the gospel passage where Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly, fits into a context. And I hope in this church that you are starting to pick up on this, that the context is king. You have to pay attention to what's going on in the story. You can't just lift verses out of their context, because if you do that, you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to. And we don't want to do that. What had just happened in this passage is Jesus had healed a man who was born blind, And no one had ever heard of a man being born blind and then having his sight restored. This man had spent decades of his life begging for food, and he was the charity case of the local synagogue. And Jesus, in response to some questions from his disciples, heals the man. They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus said, this is so that God's glory can be displayed. And so he spits down into the mud and he, and, and, he, and he makes some mud and he puts it on the man's eyes and says, go and wash. And when the man comes back, he can see his eyes have been restored. 
and people are freaked out about this. So they take them to the religious leaders, and of course they get into an argument about whether or not you can do this on the Sabbath, is it right to heal on the Sabbath, instead of saying, this is amazing. What happens is the man goes from being unable to work and a beggar to being able to see, to work, and he becomes more and more bold about his witness. And he says, I I don't know who this Jesus is, but I think he's a prophet. But I know this, I was blind and now I see. And they, they finally get frustrated with him and they kick him out of the synagogue. So he was constrained in two ways. By his blindness, he was unable to work and had to beg for his sustenance. And being part of the old religious system, he, in order to be part of the people of God, he had to be connected to that synagogue. And Jesus lifted him out of both of those situations by restoring his sight and then by inviting him into a relationship with the good shepherd, Jesus, who now constitutes the new people of God. And so they have this discussion about being blind. And the Pharisees say, what, are, are we blind too? And he says, well, if you admitted you were blind, you wouldn't be. But because you claim to see, you clearly are are blind. And he has this kind of double play on that word with them. They think they understand things and they totally miss out. And then he goes into this teaching on the good shepherd. He says, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And when he says, I am in John's gospel, he is claiming divinity. People say that the Bible never, in the Bible, Jesus never comes out and says, I'm God. But he does. He does so much so that they actually crucify him for blasphemy. And in the Greek, when he says, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, he uses a Greek construction that very clearly ties it back to when Moses asked God what his name was. I, I am. That's what God said his name was. I, I am. And so Jesus says this, I, I am the good shepherd. And by being a good shepherd, he implies there are now sheep and there were bad shepherds that came before him. He said, the thief comes to kill and steal, steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And he talks about being the gate. Now, as I understand this, I've not done much shepherding in my life of actual sheep, but they would pile up rocks to make a big pen, and, then, and there wasn't a gate, but the doorway into that pen was left open. So the shepherd would get all the sheep to go into that pen, and then he himself would lay down and sleep right across the threshold so that the sheep would have to wake him up if they tried to get out, or someone trying to come in through the gate, he would be able to defend. And Jesus talks about laying down his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run away. The false leaders will not give their lives for the sheep. But he said, as the good shepherd, he will do that. And he's done that for us. He's laid down his life out of love for us. He says people that climb in over the wall or through the thorns or a different way are not legitimate. They're coming to steal. And so many times religion is about taking from people. And Jesus said, I've come to give. And he promises an abundant life. So this morning, I want to think about how to move into that abundant life. If it is for this life and not for when we die and go to heaven, what does it look like for us to engage this? What does it look like for us to go in and out and find pasture? It's not just getting through one gate and now you're locked into this pen with the people of God. He says, I am the, I am the gate in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And then he will go in and out and find pasture. I want us to understand this morning that Jesus is about blessing. He is about abundance, not about scarcity. Think about the pasture. Think about the blessing that Jesus has. Anything that was placed into his hands was blessed immensely. 
So let's think about the first miracle recorded. He's at a wedding. They run out of wine. He doesn't just take some water and make wine. He makes the best wine of the day. And the people are surprised at how good it is. Why have you saved the best wine until now? Most people do that at first and then serve the cheap wine later. See, Jesus doesn't just make wine. He makes really good wine. Think about the picnic. He's got all these people on the hillside. They don't have food. He makes food for them, but he doesn't just satisfy their hunger. He gives in abundance so that there are 12 baskets filled with leftovers. There was more than was needed. And then he did the same thing with 4,000 people, and there were seven baskets left over. Some fish and some loaves were placed in his hand, and he fed people to abundance and overflowing. That's who God is. We see this everywhere if you go through Jesus' ministry. They were having trouble fishing one time. He said, put out a little bit into the deep water and then cast your nets down. And Peter goes, we fished all night. There are no fish in this lake. And he says, just but at your word, I'll do it. So they go out, and what happens? They bring in so many fish that their nets are breaking. It's a commercial success for these fishermen, and it's because Jesus blesses whatever is placed into his hands. Everybody who came to him asking for healing, everyone was healed in the scriptures, and some people who didn't even ask got healed. Jesus went to certain people and healed them, and they weren't even asking. Now, back up for a minute and think of my illustration of the cell phone. The power's out in my house, Let's say it's going to be out for half an hour, and I want to listen to some music. I can play the cell phone with some music, but I wonder, is there a way to amplify it? Well, we have a little wireless speaker thing, and I can connect up with Bluetooth to that, and all of a sudden the sound is bigger. As an engineer, I like to think of things that magnify, levers that increase your, your ability to lift something, or pulleys or whatever. I like things that can be amplified, magnified, strengthened. When we take our life and we place it in the hands of Jesus, he amplifies and magnifies it. That's what he's promising. Now, how do we do this? What does it look like to put your life, your little kingdom, into his bigger kingdom, which is what the invitation is? In order to do that, first of all, we have to stop conforming to the world around us. You can't look at what everyone else is doing. Because almost everyone on this planet is trying to scrape together as much for themselves as they can of possessions, of pleasure, of power, and that, is, that won't work for us. So Paul tells the Romans, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's so renewing of your mind. So, that, so we can't conform, and then also we need to learn God's will. You know, there are some passages where Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it for you. So asking in his name means asking in accordance with what he is about, what his kingdom is about, what is his will. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's an interesting study that I can't address in this brief time now, but to go through the Bible and look at every place that it says what God's will is. And there are a number of places where he tells us what he wants. So we need to understand what his will is. And then here's the next thing. We need to subject our work to the good shepherd. We need to place our lives into his hand by that mind that's been transformed and starting to use our dominion in order to serve his purposes. So when we are doing that, he blesses it. He blesses it. There's a missionary 
who's no longer alive, um, a man named Frank Laubach, and he was a missionary to the Philippines, and in 1930, he undertook um, a simple process. He wanted to place his work into God's hands to serve God, and so what he did is he realized that so often he forgets that God's kingdom is here. In Christ, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how Jesus' public ministry began. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It is now upon us. And it's accessible through Christ, who is the door. And so he said, I keep forgetting that. So he came up with this little spiritual discipline where he decided he was going to give one second of every minute to conscious awareness of God. So he would just pause and say, okay, God, you're here, and I'm working for your kingdom, and go back to his work. But now with with mindfulness of God's presence, knowing what God's will was, he would do this and do this and do this. Eventually, it became known as the game of minutes. This little spiritual exercise is fun to try. Think about how many times within a given day you have to remind yourself that God is with you and that his kingdom rules and that you serve him. If you do that throughout your day and begin to build that habit in, you are cultivating a constant prayer life, an awareness of God and a desire for his kingdom. Listen to what what Frank said after four weeks of doing this. He said, I feel simply carried along each hour doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I'd never have felt this way before. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work for sure, but there is God working along with me. What he started to find was that when he placed his life into a conscious awareness of God's kingdom, and a desire to serve God's ends, God started to amplify it. He started to bless it. He started to see favor all over the place. And throughout his life, God continued to increase his influence. And although he never had an official position, after World War II, he was a very strong voice in how the United States foreign policy worked. They listened to what he had to say. He started to get a much bigger platform. All of this happened because God took a simple prayer and started to multiply. His desire to place his, hand, his life in Jesus' hand enabled Jesus to bless what he was doing. We have real dominion. We can really do things and affect things. And what Jesus says is, come, I'm the good shepherd. Come to me, and you'll be saved, and you will go in and out through me and find pasture. So I want more than just to be comfortable. I want more than just to go to a good college, get a good job, raise a family, and hand off an inheritance to them. That's not enough. I want a life that now will count for eternity. I want to learn now how to rule with him. Remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, why were Adam and Eve created? Of course, for fellowship with God, but then he charged them to be his under shepherds and care for the creation, to rule over it that the creation was subject to their authority. That was what we were set up to do. And then, of course, disobedience entered in in the fall. And so we then began to be thieves, thiefdoms, instead of kingdom agents. And Jesus came to restore that, to redeem us and then to restore our rule under God's rule. That is such a powerful idea. If we can learn to do that now, we'll be prepared for eternity. We will be storing up, as Jesus says, treasures in heaven. We will start to see God blessing us in interesting ways because it's already the work that he wants to do. So this morning, I want you to think about your rule. Think about 
the range of your effective will. Think about all the things that you can affect with your thoughts, with your influence, with your relationships, with your physical body, all the things that you can do, and take those before God and say, here, help me understand what your will is and begin to use my influence to bring about your kingdom. And watch what happens. This abundant life is not just for when you die. It's for today. It's for now. May God give us the strength to live into that. Let's pray and ask him to do so now.